our prayers we stand. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we praise you for all that we've just sung. Uh, that you know me, that our days are numbered. And that therefore every anxious thought can be cast upon you and know that you care for us. So would we now hear again the great comfort of your word, the great comfort of your gospel as you speak to us through your son by your spirit. Bless us again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, do take a seat. And could you turn with me back to the book of Romans and chapter three. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to read from uh, verse 21. Thanks so much. Sorry, I'm going to create this one. Romans 3 and verse 21. The sharper among you who were here last week will realise this is the passage we read last week. I know that. I haven't gone mad. Uh, there is a reason uh, for it. We're slowing down at this crucial paragraph. Arguably, it's a bit of a daft thing to say, but arguably the most important paragraph ever written. Romans 3 and verse 21. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you've ever been around church for, for long, uh, you may have some of the hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? I think many of us would admit, if we're honest, that, that at times the words of songs and hymns go from the, the sheet to our mouth, through our eyes to our mouth, and out without a lot of kind of reflection. It shouldn't be like that. We want to worship from the heart, not just with the lips, but we know it happens. So I wonder if you've ever thought about that first line, and can it be that I should gain? What did Wesley write that? Well, perhaps there's a better question. Have you ever joined him in asking the question, can it be, can it really be? Particularly for us, uh, in this uh, paragraph of Romans, can it really be that we are justified entirely by God's grace? Do you see that verse 24? That's where we got to last week. I'm sorry if you weren't here last week. Don't worry, you will still, you won't be lost. But verse 24 is where we got to last week. Christians are justified by God's grace through faith. We said last week to be justified is to be declared right with God, not just forgiven our sins. OK, this is a bit crude, but imagine here is kind of neutral. OK, zero on the sin scale. Now we've sinned, so we're in debt. To be forgiven is, is to have this debt wiped away. 
But that just gets us back to zero. To be justified is to be declared right with God. We've fulfilled the law. We've done everything we should have done. We haven't. I haven't. You haven't. But you remember, children, we're justified in Jesus. God treats us as if we lived Jesus' life. So our debt is gone and his righteousness is given to us. And all this by grace. In other words, a gift. He even says that, doesn't he? In verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift. We don't do anything. That's why the Christian life is one of faith, not works. If you're new to Christianity, this, this is probably the main thing that people get wrong. So many of us think to be a Christian is to, to do our best, to try harder, to be more spiritual, to be kinder, to be... But Paul says you can't do it. The Christian life is not works, but faith, trust in Jesus. And again, we said last week, faith isn't a thing you have to summon up from yourself. Um, this Thursday, I said, I'm, I'm flying off to America. Um, to, to, to have faith in Jesus means to say that only he can rescue. I can't do anything myself. So children, it'd be like me going to the airport, going to Heathrow Airport, and saying, do you know what? I've tried running down the, 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 the runway myself, flapping my arms and jumping. Can't do it. Can't fly myself. So I'm going to get on the plane and put my trust in the plane. It is going to do all the work for me. It's not anything to my credit. It's an admission that I can't do anything. Faith is an admission in a sense of failure. I can't save myself. But it's a confident admission of failure because Jesus has done it all for me. And so where we get to in this part of Paul's letter is this amazing declaration that if you just trust Jesus instead of yourself, you are totally safe, justified, at peace with God. But the problem is we have an enemy, don't we? An enemy who whispers in our ears and says, just a minute. And since you're talking to people, even just in the last week, a little bit, the, the, the same sentence, or the same start of the sentence, repeats again and again and again. The sentence begins, yeah, but... And on it goes. Oh, I hear everything... Uh, that Paul says about being justified freely, saved by grace. Yeah, but I do still sin a lot. So, oh, I hear what, what Paul says about justification by grace alone, that I'm righteous in Christ. Yeah, but what if my faith is not very strong? Oh, you'll have your own yeah, but it's the nagging fear that somehow we're not really safe. And so this. Second half of the paragraph, uh, verses, particularly today we're looking at verses uh, 25, or sorry, 24 to 26. We'll speed up again, I promise. Paul introduces two more words uh, that really help us understand and have real certainty, if you like, in our justification. Uh, those words are redemption and propitiation. You'll see them there in the verses. Jesus Christ um, is the redemption and God put him forward as a propitiation. Uh, if you've got a new international version, it might say sacrifice of atonement or something like that. Uh, we'll come back to that in time. One word uh, on difficult words. There's a temptation to look at words like propitiation, redemption, justification, and think, ah, theology. Okay, that's for boffins and nerds and people who like big books. This is the Bible. <laughs> it's, I've not read from you from a textbook. I read to you from the book of Romans, which was written by, well, it ought to be by the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit has decided to speak to his people through words like justification, redemption, propitiation. At other times he tells us stories, at other times he sings songs like in the Psalms, at other times through the Lord Jesus he speaks to us in parables. There's a rich variety in the Bible, but we mustn't sort of turn our nose up. Some Christians just turn their nose up a little bit at the kind of writing we meet in Romans, but it is rich food. Holy Spirit knows best. Two questions this morning, therefore, to really help us look under the, if you like, under the bonnet of justification. How does it work? How is it possible? And can it really be? First question, is it really free? Can it really be free? Is it really the case that I don't have to do anything to save myself? Paul says, yes, look at verse 24. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. There's our first word, Redemption. Redemption is all about setting free. It's a word we use a little bit. You redeem vouchers, don't you? You kind of pay, you, you take the voucher in and they give you the value back and all the rest of it. But it's not a word we use loads. As a Roman heard the word redemption, they would think of the slave market. You could pay a price and set a slave free. As a Jew heard the book of Romans read out, they would think almost certainly of the Old Testament, where the language of redemption was applied time and time again to the Exodus. Children, do you remember the Exodus story? The Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, building his storehouses, and and God came and redeemed them. In other words, he set them free. Paul says the real redemption comes in Jesus Christ. And particularly in his death, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, we'll come back to that word, by his blood. Redemption comes through the death, the blood of Jesus. What was he saying? He's saying a great price needs to be paid in order that you might be put right with God, declared right with God as a free gift. A great price needed paying and you were totally unable to pay it. But Jesus came and paid it for you. He opened his wallet, as it were, and picked up the tab. You've been out for a meal and it's that thing, isn't it, where you go out for a group meal and you know you're out with wealthier people. Perhaps you're the junior in the office and it's an office party. And so you very carefully don't have a starter and then you have the cheapest main course and you don't have a pudding and everyone else is having the, you know, the oysters and the champagne. And then let's split the bill. And you're terrified until your boss says, I'll pick it up. I'll pay it all. Jesus says, I'll pay it all. I will pay every debt that you owed. The redemption is in Christ Jesus. He was the price. And that is incredibly good news. Remember who Christ Jesus is. We've already introduced to him in the first chapter of Romans. He is the son of God, God himself. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus. He's not a lesser God, a second rate deity. He wasn't... Someone that God, the real God, made. He is fully divine. God the Son. Who took on flesh. Who became man. Paul said in chapter 1, he became a descendant of David. So as you look at Jesus, you see a real man who is also at the same time really God. One person, the Son of God. But who 2,000 years ago became a real man, a real 
human mind in his head, a real human soul or spirit, real human body and emotions. And that was in order to redeem us. You see, the penalty needed paying by a human being. God couldn't have got an angel to die for us. If God had just come down as God, well, again, he couldn't have redeemed us because the debt was ours. It needs to be a human being who paid the debt for human beings' sin. But so great was God's love, he therefore became a human being in order that he might pay the debt. But when we talk at Christmas about how God became man, we don't mean, do we, that, that the Son of God stopped being divine when he came to earth. It's a great wonder of Christmas, isn't it, children? That that baby in the manger is at the same time a helpless baby who can't speak or eat or walk and the mighty God who's sustaining the universe. He remains fully divine. And therefore, when he goes to the cross and dies, the person dying on the cross is God. Now, he doesn't die as God. It's not his divine nature. It's not like the sun ceased to exist or something, or God dies. God is immortal. We have to think really hard here. Paul's taking us into the depths. The Son of God dies in his human nature. He dies as a man. But still, he, who is the person? He is the Son of God. Okay, it's really it's deep stuff. I know it's sort of stretching on a Sunday morning, but the person who died for you is God, God the Son. And therefore, his death has infinite value. If you could persuade every sinless angel in all of creation to come and die in your place, however many thousands upon thousands of them there are, Gabriel, Michael, all the seraphim and cherubim who haven't sinned, all these incredible angelic creatures, if you could persuade all of them to die for you, their deaths would not have more value than the death of Jesus. If you could persuade every good person in the world to die for you, their deaths would not have more value than the death of the Son of God. Do you see how Christ's death is so much more valuable, is so great a payment compared to your sin? Your sin is awful. Our sin is awful. But he has the riches to pay. I think I've said before, my only kind of real job before ministry was teaching um, extremely posh kids in Norfolk how to uh, read Latin and play cricket. A real gritty, down-to-earth job. Uh, one of the girls there grew up and married the son of an oligarch, a Russian oligarch. And it happened that sort of we came back into contact later in life and we knew someone else in the family. And um, it was her sister, actually, so, um, said she, she went around Harrods with this oligarch's mum. Okay, so the, the woman married to the, to, to the oligarch. And, and the, the woman was saying, why don't you get something? And was, was just getting all sorts of stuff. Okay, now, Harrods children, you might know, it's, it's pretty much like, it's like the most expensive shop in London. Okay, there's no way, my children, we're never going there. Um, there's no way you can afford it. And, and our friend was getting increasingly anxious like this. I cannot afford as she can afford. This woman's putting in you know, Gucci handbags and jewellery and clothes and caviar. And... But when she gets to the till, she just paid it all. And it doesn't put a dent in her finances. She's so wealthy that it doesn't even, doesn't even bother. She doesn't even have to look at the prices. 
Our friend said it was amazing going shopping with her. It just doesn't... Who cares? Okay. I know I've got it covered. Jesus' death has you totally covered because it is not just one man dying for you. It is the Son of God dying for you. So is your salvation free? Yes, to you. It costs Jesus' life. But he has paid all the bills. You know, there's letters come through the door. The, you, you look up, you pick up the mail, and if they're handwritten, you think, oh, it might be a nice letter from someone. It's increasingly rare nowadays, isn't it? And there's always the ones that you know are bills. And you, you dread opening them. What's, what's it going to be? Particularly at the moment, what's it going to be this time? Jesus has gathered up all our bills and paid them all if we trust him. It is really free. And so, <coughs> excuse me, when you feel like you're too much in debt, your sin is too great, what do you do? Don't look at your sin. Don't look at your repentance. Don't look at your efforts to try harder. Look at Jesus. Just point to him. That is how God can say, yes, you're right with me. Because he has paid it all. His value is far greater, even than your sin. First question, is it really free? Second question, doesn't sin make God angry? A few people have said this to me this week. Yeah, I... I sort of understand what you say, but doesn't sin, I still sin. So surely God's still angry with me. Is he not in some way going to have to punish me? And that brings us to Paul's second question from verse 24 to 25. Second word, sorry. We're justified through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. That's the word the ESV uh, use there, uses there. Again, if you've got something like a new international version, it might say something like sacrifice of atonement. We'll come to why in a minute. Well, what does it mean to propitiate? There's another word we don't use very often. Children, have you ever used the word propitiate? I doubt it. To propitiate basically means to, to, to make someone happy with you again after they've been angry. Okay, so imagine a husband who, um, hypothetical husband, who forgets uh, his wife's birthday uh, and realises a couple of days later that he's forgotten the birthday and dashes down to the, to the shop, buys a load of flowers, brings them back. His wife is rightly cross, but she sees the bunch of flowers and her anger melts away and um, uh, she becomes favourable to him uh, again. Well, that would be the husband propitiating his wife. Uh, the, the, the word uh, in verse 25, it is part of a group of words. Sometimes they get used outside the Bible as well, and particularly in, in ancient Greek myths. Uh, it, would, it would be all to do with someone who, who knew the gods were angry with him. So there's one story where a, a guy's trying to sail a Greek myth, where he's trying to sail across the sea to, to engage in a war, and Poseidon, the sea god, is angry with him. And he, he keeps, therefore, the sea god keeps destroying his ships, and it's all going wrong, until he makes a sacrifice. So horribly in the story, the guy sacrifices his own daughter, but he sacrifices his daughter to propitiate, to make the sea god happy with him again, to turn aside the god's anger. And once you've paid the god off with all these sacrifices, whether it's animals or even humans, well, then you're okay, you're at peace. That is the, the meaning of that kind of word. And, and, and the word propitiation is there in the Bible. Okay, This idea of a propitiatory sacrifice, a sacrifice that bears God's anger at sin and means that now he can look on us with favour rather than anger. That word is in the Bible, particularly in 1 John. It comes in 1 John 2, 2 and 4, 10, the propitiatory sacrifice. Um, that is not quite the word that is here. Um, there is, this is sort of, I don't like doing this very often, but 
I'm not sure, and I should say it's not just me, but almost every person who comments on this uh, on this passage um, says that that it's not it's not the word for the propitiation sacrifice. Okay, so that's all true. It's just not the word here. That the word here, literally in Greek, it's the word hilasterion, and it's the word that almost everywhere else in the Bible, and certainly everywhere else in the New Testament, means mercy seat. It's just a different word. So although you see the word propitiation in 1 John and in Romans 3, they're different Greek words. Related, a bit like joy and rejoice and joyful, they're all kind of related, but they're different. And this word, all the way through the Greek version of the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, undeniably elsewhere, places like Hebrews 9.5, if you want to look it up later, means the mercy seat. Now, what's a mercy seat? You can see why the translators decided to go for another word, because, you know, what on earth is a mercy seat? The mercy seat was part of the furniture of the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God built a, a tent and later a temple and said, well, I'm going to dwell in the middle of it, in the most holy place. He built three rooms, the holy place, the most holy place, sorry, where he dwelt in this glory cloud. Do you remember that, children? And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was an outer room and another outer room where the sacrifices happened. But in that most holy place where God dwelt with his people, there was a box, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the box were the Ten Commandments, along with a few other things. But the lid of the box is known as the mercy seat. Again, you'll find it all the way through the Old Testament. The mercy seat. Why? And why on earth would Paul say that Jesus is the mercy seat in the middle of his argument here? Well, again, we need to think like Paul do a bit of a deep dive on the whole world that he's working in. He knows his Old Testament well. And he's conjuring up the story, particularly of the Day of Atonement. Once a year, throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel would gather and the high priest, the representative of the people, would put his hands on the heads of various animals, bulls and goats, and confess the sins of the people. They'd better look on because this would happen in the sort of entrance, the courtyard. The animals would then be killed again in the courtyard. People could see. They were sacrificed. But then the blood was collected. It's quite gory, isn't it, children? The blood was collected and then the priest would disappear. It'd be like me walking through those curtains. And the congregation of Israel wouldn't be able to see what's happening anymore. But the high priest would go through into the most holy place. No one went in there all year. That was God's holy place. His cloud dwelt there. No one dared go in. If you went in, you'd die. But once a year on this day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in with the blood, with the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, on top of this box. And perhaps you begin to see why, therefore, Paul says that Jesus is the mercy seat. What was the point of those sacrifices? Those sacrifices were to cover over Israel's sin, to deal with their sin. To enable God to pass over their sin and keep living with them rather than break out in anger against them. And even the picture of, of, if you can sort of almost imagine it in your mind's eye, even the picture of what's going on is tremendously helpful. So you've got the room, you've got the box, okay, big, big old box, a bit wider than this. And God's cloud, his glory cloud was on top of it. That's why he called the box sometimes his footstool. In the box were the Ten Commandments, the law, how Israel should have lived. 
Now, if God were to look just at the law and then at his people, they were dead men and women. Because they hadn't kept the law, just like you and me. The law, as God looks down at it, this is how you're meant to live before me. Here's my footstool. I've written underneath my feet how you should live and you just haven't done it. So God in that cloud, as it were, where heaven and earth connected, the most holy place, it's like the, the elevator between heaven and earth, as you like. God should look down, see the law, look at his people, and they are dead. In other words, chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. But, but he was a God rich in mercy. And so he provided these sacrifices so that blood would cover over the mercy seat. It would be sprinkled with blood. So when, as it were, God looks down, he sees... Not the broken law in the box, but the sacrifice that has paid for the broken law. And therefore, he does not need to break out and punish his people because, in their case, symbolically at least, the animal has died instead. The blood covers over. And that is what Jesus' death does. Jesus' death is what makes it possible for God not to judge you by the law, as he should do, but to say that debt has been paid, the punishment has fallen, a death has been exacted. You ought to die, but he's died in your place. And therefore, therefore I can justify you. I can declare you right with me. I said earlier, it's not... It's not actually the propitiation word exactly. They're related, but not exactly the same. But the idea is there, exactly the same. All the way through Romans, we've seen that God does get angry at sin. If you've got a Bible in front of you, chapter 2. Do you see time again we saw this? Chapter 2, verse 2. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice evil things. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man that you will escape the judgment of God. Chapter chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, children, wrath is anger. Verse 8. Those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteous, there will be wrath and fury. God is rightly angry at sin. Because he's good. If he wasn't good, he could just, hey, better sin, who cares? But he's pure, he's good, and so he must punish sin. Jesus' death pays for that. He takes the wrath in our place. And he is the mercy seat, therefore. He is the, I mean, if we go elsewhere in the body, he's both the priest, the one who offers himself, he is the sacrifice, he is the place of atonement, the mercy seat, it is his blood he's sprinkled. He is everything. In order that God might be able to look at you freely and say, yeah, you and I, we are right. You are justified before me. As Jesus headed towards the cross, he spoke about a cup he had to drink. And he was picking up imagery from the Old Testament. The cup was the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus said, I will drink it. And on the cross, he did. He poured that wrath at sin. So I've got a cup here. Imagine this is the cup. 
and, and, and the, the, the cup of wrath, the, the, the idea was that God's anger was in a cup and he said the nation's going to have to drink it down. People are going to have to pay for their sin. And Jesus came along and said, I'm going to drink it. Okay, so he drank the cup. Now, I maybe put too much here. How much can you drink from this cup now, children? What is left for you to drink? If I said, here is the cup, it's empty. There is nothing left. Jesus drunk the cup of God's wrath. That means that there is no anger left to be poured on us. Because it's been poured on Jesus, he drained the cup. He is the sponge that soaked up God's anger. God's righteous anger was satisfied at the cross. All because he is this sacrifice of atonement. He is the mercy seat, the one who covers over our sin because of his wrath-bearing death. And Paul says this, is, this explains the Old Testament. There's a puzzle in verse 25 that I imagine you've never puzzled over. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. What's he talking about? He's saying, how on earth did God forgive all those people in the Old Testament? How did he pass over their sin? David committed adultery and arranged for someone's murder. How on earth was he not killed? Noah got drunk. Rahab was a prostitute. We could list endless sins of the people of God in the Old Testament. How are they not struck down for them? Paul says, well, God was able to pass over them, not because he was just closing his eyes and wanting to pretend they didn't happen, but because he was going to punish them in his son instead. People in the Old Testament were saved the same way as us, by the way, saved by Jesus' death in their place. They looked forward to a sacrifice that hadn't yet happened. We look back to a sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's the same thing, essentially. Same way of being saved, one gospel throughout the Bible. And the result is, verse 26, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look, I know this is a dense argument, but it's so important. Just and the justifier. God is just. He does punish every sin. There is not a single sin committed in the history of the universe that will not be punished. The only question is, is it going to be punished in Jesus or in us? But every sin will be punished. And if you put your trust in Jesus, if you're in him, you believed in him, then God can also justify you. He doesn't give up his justice. He doesn't give up his goodness, his holiness. It's demonstrated at the cross. All your sin on Jesus' shoulders. But because he has taken it on himself, he therefore can, well, he can justify you. His character is maintained. There are, if you like, two days of judgment. There's the one coming, and there's the one that fell on Jesus. And our only choice is which one is going to be the day that my sins are punished. Incredible result of that means that even God's righteousness, his, his holiness, his justice, which we tend to think of as part of his character that we're a bit worried about, scared about. We like his grace and his mercy. They're the kind of friendly attributes. But, but his justice and his holiness, they're the scary ones. The incredible news is because of the death of Jesus, even his justice 
his attribute of he will punish sin, his holiness, his hatred of sin, that is good news for you. It is good news because God won't punish sin twice. That would be unjust. Because your sin was punished in Jesus, and because God is just and won't change his mind, won't punish unfairly, then you're secure. Even his justice is now a welcoming attribute, if you like, a friendly attribute. You are secure because you will not punish sin twice. I remember being taught as a kid or a teenager about the way that uh, Native Americans dealt with fires uh, as they swept across the prairies. The only way they could be safe because they can't stop the fire was to burn some ground ahead of the fire and then stand on it because the fire can't sweep over ground that is already burnt. Jesus is like that burnt over ground, Paul is saying to us. If you stand in him, the fire can't fall on you. You are totally safe. And that's why, yes, it can be that you have an interest in your saviour's blood. The penalty, the debt has been paid, sorry, and the wrath has been borne, the death has been taken. And so therefore the justice of God demands that on the last day all those who put their faith in Jesus will be right with him. In fact, you're declared right with him already, and the last day it'll just be shown. All of this means ultimately that when the doubts creep in, when the fears, when the guilt of your sin, when the evil one whispers in your ear, not you, not that kind of sin, it's too much, it's too bad, it's too often, it's too serious. The job is not to try and justify yourself, talk your way out of it, but to say, yeah, guilty in every way and probably worse than I imagine. But look at Jesus, his value is infinitely more than my sin. Look at Jesus, all the cup of wrath has been drained. My sin is covered over, he is my mercy seat. He is covering me. And the Christian life needs to be lived constantly, therefore gazing at Jesus and particularly Christ crucified. Let me literally on some sort of icon or something. But reassuring yourself daily, even hourly for many of us, he has paid it all. And therefore, I am secure. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are so introverted. We're so quick to look to ourselves. So quick to doubt your mercy. But we praise you that you are just and the justifier of all who look to Jesus. We thank you that you gave Jesus to be a sacrifice for us. So great was your love. Jesus, we praise you that you are willing to die in our place. That you are the mercy seat at the place of sacrifice that covers over all our breaches of God's law. And we ask that we might live, therefore, in confidence before you as we empty ourselves of all excuses, all self-justification and stand in you alone. We bless you that we are safe and pray for hearts that trust. In your own name, Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen.